Christopher Cabrera, a father, husband, brother, and son. He's had a lifetime of otherworldly encounters, and I sat down and spoke with him a few weeks ago to talk about everything. Chris has had experiences with everything from shadow people to UFOs. He's kind, humble, and fascinating, and I cannot wait for you to meet him. You can accept it or be stupid and be a skeptic. Unconceivable, unbelievable, unidentified flying objects. Welcome to the I Want to Believe podcast. This is the third bonus episode of Season 5. I'm Nomar Slavic. We're doing something a little bit different with this episode. I don't normally do interviews, but we're doing one tonight. A couple of months ago, Chris had me on his show, Universal Dialect. We had a long, fascinating conversation about all things paranormal. And even before I had that interview with Chris, I found out that he's had his own otherworldly encounters. He's been on shows such as The Confessionals with Tony Merkel, and he was even on Mystery Wire with George Knapp. Chris has had a lifetime of encounters, and he's telling us everything. This will be a long-form interview, and we may even have Chris back on for part two. Now, before we get to Chris and his stories and all of that, I wanted to give a quick reminder that all of our I Wanna Believe social media and email are in the show notes. My latest book, We Only Come Out at Night, is available for purchase. This book is a collection of short horror stories and can be found online at slavicstore.company.site, along with some of my other books, including Granite Skies and Strange Trilogy. You can also find some of my books at the Greenhand Bookshop in Portland, Maine. Also, my documentary, Otherworldly Amore, has found a new home. That documentary is currently streaming exclusively on Paraflix Paranormal Plus. This is a subscription service, much like Netflix, and you can do a monthly or yearly subscription. Besides my documentary, they have hundreds of other paranormal shows and documentaries and even some horror movies. So if you can, go over there and show them some love. Also, if you use the code OTHERWORLDLYAMORE10, as in 1-0, OTHERWORLDLYAMORE10, you will get 10% off your first three months of your subscription. You can check the show notes for those links and more. All right, let's get into our discussion with Christopher Cabrera. As you can see, I'm looking at the roof right now, over the roof of the apartment complex I live in which is in Kissimmee, Florida. It's January 2nd. It's almost eight o'clock, 7.55. And as you're looking at the roof, I'm using a flip ultra high definition video camera. And if you look on the top left by the roof, 
you'll see a blinking light. That blinking light is a UFO. So Chris Cabrera, thanks for talking to us. Can you uh, tell us what time period uh, you were at Nellis? From 98, late 98 till 2002. And were you uh, working at security? I was a security forces member. Now, friends, this week we have an overtime show with Chris. Now, this was an awesome time talking to Chris. This whole week is going to be focused on Chris. He is going to come on today and talk about Area 2, not Area 51, not S4, Area 2. I first met Chris almost 20 years ago. He was a music journalist for Insomniac Magazine. And he was also the first person to ever review one of my albums in print form. I will be forever grateful for that. <laughs> Chris went on to enlist into the Air Force, and he also has a family. How about we just have Chris introduce himself? All right, well, I'm Chris Cabrera. I was born in New York City, uh, 70s and 80s, left like in late 89, and then moved to Central Florida in late 89. Lived in Florida up until 98, and then I joined the military, United States Air Force, and I served there from 98 to 2002. Came back to Florida in 2002, and I've lived here in Central Florida since then. I'm married, you know, been married 26 years. I have three kids. My oldest is 26. My uh, middle child is 20, and then my youngest is 16. My oldest and my youngest, my 26-year-old and my 16-year-old, are on the autism spectrum. They skip the middle one. I'm a father, a husband. You know, I'm a, I'm a sibling. You know, I got a, a, a older sister and a younger brother. They're very influential to me. But other than that, I mean, yeah, I, I just I'm a regular guy. You know, ain't nothing special about me. You know what I mean? <laughs> Not other than the crazy stuff that I've been through, you know, my whole life. But. <laughs> I wanted Chris to relay his stories in chronological order. The first thing I asked him about were his earliest memories of the paranormal. Here's what he had to say. My earliest memories, I want to say I was about, I want to say seven, eight. This was in New York, in the Bronx. And at that time, my brother would have been like two or three. To give a little bit more background, my mother and my father got divorced when I was probably like around five years old. So I was living with my mother. She's a single mother. So it was me and my sister initially. My mother remarried and had another child, which is my brother. My first memory of paranormal was living with my mother, my stepfather, and then my siblings. And there would be these weird instances of me sleeping at night in my bed, in a room with my brother, not my sister being there. And I think that was because we grew up poor and we lived in an apartment and there wasn't a lot of room. So I think my sister slept in the living room. Everything in New York is essentially old and particularly in the Bronx. There's not really a lot of like renovation that goes on there for newer things, particularly like in the 70s and 80s. It was pretty much run down the whole like borough of the Bronx. And one would say that for sure, New York as a whole is a haunted place. I've, I've heard that phrase being spoken before by a lot of people because of its history. So a lot goes on in New York, you know, there's, there's a lot of negative, sick energy. Back to my story, living in this apartment, it wasn't like a newer apartment, it was old, uh, the doors were old, everything was old, and I would be sleeping, and I would see these beings, 
And these beings would be doing like these tricks, I guess, like floating in the corner like of the ceiling. But the thing is, like, I remember seeing them as cartoon characters that I liked. Okay. Now, I know it sounds weird, but being into the paranormal throughout all these years, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 49 in August. So I've been into the paranormal probably over 20 years and hearing all these different stories, you know, some sounding silly and then some I can relate to. There's been plenty of stories of where people say these beings, they could be aliens, they could be angels, demons, whatever, have a way of getting into your mind and not allowing you to see who they really are. And they take on the form of something that the person is comfortable with. Steven Spielberg had this show. It was like a miniseries called Taken. There's a scene in there that really hit me hard when I saw it. And it's a scene where like you have this father putting this kid to sleep and he tells the kid good night and the father leaves the room, turns off the light and the kid starts to go to sleep. But there's this light that flashes in through the bedroom window and the kid wakes up. This child knows that something's going on. And then in through this window comes this sort of cartoon character, like a squirrel or like a rat or something. It motions for this kid to follow him. So then I think it cuts to outside and this squirrel standing by this tree or this rat whatever this character is and the kid comes out and then the the tree has a door to it now it sounds weird but but bear with me the tree has a door to it and the door opens up the kid walks in and as the squirrel's about to walk in it breaks the fourth wall and looks at the camera and then it goes into the into the tree as well and the tree turns into a ufo and then it disappears here you have this cartoon character that's known to this kid that this kid is comfortable with and gets this kid to come with it when in actuality it's an alien that's what they're saying that this alien was able to impose itself as something it wasn't so that's what i think was happening to me when i was young now i spoke to my brother about this we've gone in length about it he has a different story his story is of seeing lights in the room orbs flying around. Now, I don't know if it's because he was younger than me and he was more a baby, but that's what he remembers. Okay. And that, that, that's like my earliest memories. Also things around that time where like I would go to sleep in the room, but wake up in the living room and not know how I got there. There was this other incident where again, sleeping in the room, wake up in the living room. And this was around Christmas time because I remember we had this Christmas tree. And I woke up like, I want to say around six in the morning and it was like almost daylight. Like there was a little bit of light coming in through the window and something had me looking at this, at the Christmas tree. And I don't know why I was looking at this Christmas tree, but I felt like there was something behind it. Almost like a, a shimmering, like, you know how the predator, the shimmering sort of figure was standing behind it. And after a while, it just like, it disappeared. And I remember that being an early like remembrance of, of things that happened when I was young. If you recall from the montage that I made of Chris with his various radio appearances, there was also a bit of audio from a video that Chris shot in Florida. And that was a video of a UFO, which you can watch on his YouTube channel. And I'll make sure to put that link in the show notes. But what we're moving on to next 
is Chris's preteen years and the first time he saw a UFO. Also, I'm going to put a trigger warning here. There is some brief child abuse disgust. There's nothing too graphic, but I did want to make sure that you were prepared. Preteen leading into my teens, okay? So everything has its origins, all right? So the origin of, of Chris Cabrera comes from my upbringing. And you and I have talked about this off air when we had our last interview. I grew up in an abusive household. And that can shape a person, okay? That can make or break them, essentially, or both, make and break them. I didn't have a lot of support growing up from both my mother and my father. A lot of my support came from my older sister who served as a mother figure to both my brother and I. So everything that, uh, well, not everything, but most of what I'm into culturally comes from my sister, music, art, etc. So in my teenage years, I got into the occult. It didn't lead to heavy metal because heavy metal to me is not satanic. You know, as most people say, there are groups that, that say they worship the devil, but it's, it's comic. You know, they just do it for the, and I'm pretty sure there are people that worship the devil that are into metal, but it's no different than saying a, a, a rapper's satanic because he's talking about selling drugs to his own people and killing his own people. It's really no different. Right. So, <laughs> so let me get that out the way. So, so I got into metal at a young age. And then at the same time, again, living in New York, the hip hop culture was just starting. So I was getting into that. I was getting into punk rock. I was essentially a latchkey kid, meaning my mother would work and she would, you know, leave me a key to either watch my brother or to stay home alone. And a lot of times, you know, I not want to be home because I knew what was there already. I already knew the environment it was abusive, whatever. So I would leave and I would, you know, take off and, and go on these adventures all over the city. There was this time where I was staying with my father because my mother, my father divorced. My father had some custody. He was only able to see me and my sister at the time for like every other week. And this one time I, I went, and this, is, this happened in the daytime, by the way. So um, I went to his apartment. He, was, he already had started another family. And I'm playing in the back part of the living room by this window. And the window's a panoramic window. I want to say it's about six feet wide, maybe three feet in height. It had a windowsill on the inside and it had a windowsill on the, out, on the outside. In the winter times, the windowsill on the outside would gather up like snow. And since I was young, you know, preteen, you know, I was a collector of action figures. So I would play with my action figures, you know, on the windowsill in the snow, whatever, because I wasn't allowed to go outside for whatever reason. <laughs> and it was so boring there at my, at my uh, father's house, you know, pretty much just sit me down in front of a TV and just say, just stay there. And that was m me spending time with him. So... <laughs> So, I mean, I found things to do inside the house that wouldn't get me in trouble. And that was one of them. So um, I'm sitting on this windowsill. It's daytime. It's probably like maybe 12. And the block you lived in, the apartments weren't super high. It wasn't like in the city, like the main, like inside of the city where you got these 20-story buildings. Like his neighborhood, the apartments were at the most like three stories high. In the daytime, you can see the whole sky. So anyway, so I'm, I'm sitting there and playing. And I see this object coming from my right side now there used to be this game i used to play where i would see a plane or a jet or a helicopter and it would come from one side on a horizontal plane to the other and i'll play this game where i would close my eyes where i saw it last and i would try to open it up where i think it would be at like trying to see if i can catch up to the speed of it so i try to do it with this object but 
like I close my eyes and I open and it's farther than what I thought it was already. So this thing was going super fast. Now, when I tell you it was black, it was the blackest black cigar shaped thing that I've ever seen. Imagine seeing a blue sky and someone cutting a hole, a cigar shaped hole in it. That's how dark it was. It kind of looked like a floating portal. As quickly as I saw it, I'm looking at it. My dad tells me, hey, it's lunchtime. I turn my head real quick to say, I'll be right there. It was gone. So that was probably my first sighting of a UFO that I could remember. Let me put this in context. This is the 80s. So kids are into certain things, right? They're into ninjas at the time. They're into vehicles, right? Because at the time you had Knight Rider and Street Hawk and all these cool vehicles. And we're into aircraft. And so what did I have on my walls? Posters of jets and all these different aerial vehicles. So I was aware of what a jet looked like and what a plane looked like and a helicopter. And I knew at the time that they already had released the SR-71 Blackbird. But they're not flying that over New York. And this thing didn't have any wings. And there was no reflection. The sun was out and there was no reflection hitting it. So I knew at the time that it wasn't anything conventional. I already knew that. I couldn't talk about it. Like, I think I talked to my brother, but again, he's younger. He can't process that information. But it did prompt me to go to the library and look up stuff on UFOs and, you know, the paranormal. I also remember when I was young and not feeling like I could talk to anybody about things that I was seeing in my home paranormal activity or things in the sky. My very first UFO experience, I actually did talk to my dad about. And I talked to him about it when I was very young. I was around four years old. And I, I've talked about this in my books and on other radio shows. And he wasn't dismissive. It's just that he thought I was mistaken in what I saw. And there's people all over like Chris, like me, like Mike Stevens, countless others who have had experiences their entire lives and don't really know where to turn to except the library. Whatever you believe in knows just how valuable a library is, especially to an introvert that doesn't feel like they can talk about what's going on in their lives. So now at this point in our conversation, we're moving on to Chris's later teen years. He's around 16 years old at this time, and it's Halloween, and something really peculiar happens. He gets into one particular Halloween night and something that he and some friends witnessed. I also wanted to give another trigger warning here where Chris discusses, again in brief terms, uh, more about the child abuse and with his sister coming out and how that affected his mother and, and, and things like that. So just wanted to prepare you. I'm not I'm not afraid to, to talk about it. It's just it, it's part of my life. You know what I mean? It's part of my story. It's part of who I am. Um, my sister, because of the abuse that was going on in the house, was starting to separate herself from the family, not particularly me or my brother, because. Again, she was a mother figure, so she felt like she, she always wanted to protect us. But at the same time, she's an older, not, well, not older, like she's older than me, but she's, she's going from being a teenager to being a woman at this time. So she's ha she has no choice but to branch out and to kind of start her own life. You hit an age where that it happens when you're 19, 20, 21. 
So she's in her 20s. And so there was an incident where my mother found out that she was gay. And it caused a stir in the family. She, my, my sister wound up getting kicked out. It was very traumatic to me and my brother. We didn't have that protection anymore because she was kind of like the buffer sometimes uh, to stop my mother from abusing us. But once she was gone, there was no buffer there. And so my brother and I became the target. You're growing up and you're dealing with these things and you're trying to find outlets and, and find ways to kind of disconnect so you're not there. So I used music and art and stuff, but I also got, in, like I said, I got, I got interested in the occult to the point where one day this, I'm at school, there's a bunch of kids talking about, hey, Halloween's coming up, we should do something crazy. And this kid that we really don't know that well, his name was Teddy, overhears us, and he's like, well, if you want to do something crazy, I can take you to a satanic seance. I'm like, I'm game. I'm like, sure, let, let's just keep it between us. So we planned to do this where we were going to meet him at the cemetery in New York called St. Michael's Cemetery. Leading up to the day, there a lot of people decided they didn't want to do it anymore. Like people started to drop out of it. And I was still game. I was like, you know, I have nothing else better to do. And so we wound up going. We I wound up going with this guy that I didn't know. I met up with him. We jumped in his car and it was like maybe like four or five of us. We jumped in the car. We were supposed to meet this kid, Teddy, at the cemetery. And uh, and then from there, he was going to sneak us in because, you know, they, they just don't have the front gates open for you. You know, you have to either make an appointment to be there or you have to be there at a certain time when the gates open, which is usually during the daytime. But this was like really late at night. It was probably like 11 midnight. So we get there and it's just us. And as we're about to to, to you know enter we run into the kid that's supposed to let us let us in and he, he gives us some you know little guidelines like listen you know you need to stick by me he's like we're gonna go he, he pretty much laid everything out like where we're gonna go not to make any noise obviously all this this and that but lo and behold you know the, the cemetery is like in the middle of this street and there's streets it literally like in the middle and there's streets all around it and it's a pretty big cemetery but you can sometimes hear what's going on on the other side because that area is very quiet and you can hear like cars pulling up with kids yelling and screaming and blah, blah, blah. So apparently the word got out and instead of us knowing about it, other kids, not only from our school, from other schools knew that we were going to go there. So they showed up. I was like, look, I don't, I don't want to get in trouble. So I was like, I'll take me home. You know what I mean? This is going to get stupid right now. But Teddy was like, don't worry about it. I'm going to take you into a side that they don't know. He's like, they're going to fuck around on, on another side. We're going to be on a completely different side. You know, I'm already there. They're not going to take me home. I'm like miles away from my house. There's no way I'm going to get home in time. You know, so I'm like, fuck it, I'll, I'll stay. So we entered through a different side. Now, we go up to this gate. There's dogs, by the way, like inside. They had dogs in there. And they were separated by three different gates. So you had, and it's very similar to like the military, now that I think about it, when I was serving. But you had like three gates. And in the middle of one of these gates, there was a pathway, and that's where the dogs were. But he took us around the other side of that. And there was this gate that was ripped open. And then when I say ripped open, it wasn't like the bars were like cut. It wasn't like if something like a car hit it and made a hole in it. It looked like something busted out of it. 
because the bars were facing outward. They were stretched. We sneak in through there. And the cemetery, like there's parts where it's very heavily like wooded. Then there's open area where you have all the tombstones. And then there's another section where it's a wide open field. And so we're in the wooded area, right between the open field and the tombstones. But we continue to walk. And as we're walking around, we get to this area where we don't see tombstones anymore. And we're pretty much not too far away. I want to say maybe, I don't know, like a thousand feet from the yard. And you can see that there was some, something being done there. Like, like the ground was almost like uprooted. There, there was stones in like a circular pattern. Like, so he was like, just hang out here. And I'll imagine there's like six of us there. So he's like, wait, just wait a second. So I'm looking at my, my watch, my, my, my transformer watch at the time, because that's when they had transformer watches. And we're there for like 20 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half. And he's like, just hang out. So next thing you know, we hear cars pull up and there's like six hearse. So they drive up one behind each other and they're following each other. And I'm thinking in my mind, this is, this is like a heavy metal video. Like, I'm not thinking this is real. This is like, you know, uh, you know, Black Sabbath is going to perform or something. You know what I mean? Like, like I think it's comical. Like, they're, they're, it's hearse, you know, like Halloween, hearse, you know. So they form this circle and these people come on. They have these black robes with these hoods on. You can't see their faces at all. There's at least maybe 10 of them. So they, they start setting stuff up and we're just there watching. And they start like this fire. And then they start chanting some stuff. And I don't know what they're chanting. It's Latin or something like that. And then all of a sudden, the fire starts getting bigger on its own. I swear to God. It was a little fire. And next thing you know, it starts getting bigger and bigger on its own. But in the corner of my eye, I'm seeing lights across the way on the other side of the wooded area. Like these lights flashing. And I bumped this guy, Teddy. I'm like, what the fuck is that? And he's like, oh, those are the other people that came. So you can hear them yelling and screaming. I'm like, what are we going to do? You know, they, they're going to interrupt this thing that these guys are doing. And lo and behold, that's what happened. Somebody came out in the wooded area and yelled something at these guys like you satanic motherfuckers or whatever. Next thing you know, like they start scrambling and like four or five of them started heading our way. So either they knew we were there already or they just were running away and they were heading in our direction. So we took off. Then it turns into a chase where they're chasing us. Now they know we're there. I don't know where I'm at. I'm, I'm kind of lost and I'm just following whoever's in front of me. Now, a couple people, you know, like in the horror movies, they fall, they get back up, they're running. You know. So next thing you know, I get out the, the hole. A couple of us get out the hole. We jump in the car and we take off. Teddy's not with us, but we think he got away. Weeks later, we find out that he's missing and they never found him. Yeah, they never found the kid. I was like... 16 he was like 18 or so so he wasn't really like a kid but he you know he's street smart he was a very street smart kid but never heard from him again and there's people that said that they went to his house to see because they knew where he lived and his mother said you know she thinks he ran away but they didn't tell the mom that you know he took us there it's fucking bananas but there was something there though for sure like i felt like a presence there 
Moving on to Chris's early 20s, he's now in Florida and he's getting settled and he meets a friend. This friend takes him one night to use a Ouija board. And what ended up happening truly frightened him. I'm also going to add another warning here. Chris does get into some talk about racism that he had to face in New York and in Florida, especially with a friend that he met and their father. Again, it's very brief, but I did want to make sure you were prepared. There's also some brief mentions about drug abuse as well. Uh, Also, if you're a racist, uh, stop stop listening to my show and unfriend me. That'd be great. All right, thanks. I'm living in Florida at the time, early 20s. I'm in like, like 19, 20 years old. My first two years in Florida. So this is probably like 91, 92. Like I always say, ghetto kids hang out with ghetto kids regardless. You know, I'm, I'm living in the South. So, you know, I'm dealing with racism on another level. You know, I, I dealt with racism in New York, believe it or not. This girl had liked me. She was a Caucasian girl. She had liked me. I knew her through some other friends. Her name was... And so I would hang out with her, but I, I didn't like her that way. I liked her as a friend. I didn't want to, I didn't want to, you know, mess up our friendship. So I told her, look, you know, I, I'm not trying to start a relationship. It's not only that her dad was racist and he knew she hung out with non-Caucasian people. So he would always shit on her all the time. And she grew up in an abusive household and her mom, you know, was an ex druggie. So she wasn't in the picture. And so she lived with her dad and she wasn't, you know, too far from me. She was like almost around the corner from where I live. But so we were hanging out one day and she was like, listen, you know, come over tonight. I have some friends coming over. They're going to bring some, you know, bottles and James wine cooler. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> we're there hanging out, you know, just talking, you know, I'm, get, I'm getting to know some of these people that I've never met before. And one person pulls out a Ouija board. And so like, I'm reluctant to mess with it because I know what a Ouija board does. I knew that a Ouija board is, is, can be dangerous you know reluctantly i went along and i played the ouija board with them and so it started out with like four of us and so to set the mood they did all this stupid shit like you know they turned the lights off and they lit candles around the room and so we started to play with this ouija board some of the people you know were joking around and moving it on purpose but after about 20 minutes it started to to move on its own People were asking it, you know, different questions. Some, some of the questions were stupid. But for some reason, it, re- it really was uh, keen on this girl. It was responding more to her than, than anybody else. I wasn't really actively, like, trying to get involved. But so she was asking the questions. And apparently she had lost a friend, like, months prior. And so she was asking questions to ultimately lead up to this thing saying that that's who it was. And so... You know, she's asking her questions and it's responding and it's saying things like, I miss you or whatever. But then one of the people asked, are you really or are you something else? And then it spelled out demon. In the corner of my eye, my peripherals, I'm seeing like the bathroom door slowly close. Her apartment was like an open floor plan. So the living room, you can see the kitchen, you know, you can see the, the door to the bathroom, the door to, her, to the bedrooms. So I'm seeing like the dishes moving. Okay. But I'm thinking to myself, okay, there's candlelight and maybe it's the can the candlelight is playing tricks with me, you know, the flickering, but I'm seeing these things happening. So I'm just like, just there, just waiting for this 
this thing to end. And so she starts crying because she's like, you know, how come you lied to me, whatever. And this thing flipped on its own, like literally the whole board flipped. So everybody was like, we're done. That's it. We're done. But it doesn't end there. I leave. Everybody leaves. A couple of days later, I run into her. She doesn't look good. Looks like she hasn't slept. So I'm like, how are you doing? She's like, I'm not doing that great. I'm like, what happened? What's going on? So she told me, one, her father, who already is a crabby dude, is extra. Like she said, he normally would come home, you know, drink a beer, relax. I mean, he would have his moods or whatever. But for the most part, you know, he would just leave me alone. But she's like, ever since we did that Ouija board, he's angrier. Like any little thing gets to him. And then she said, I'm noticing things in the corner of my eyes, like shadows moving around. One time I took a shower, the steam on the mirror formed the word die. And she said it wasn't like her father because she was by herself. And she knew that there was nothing like pre-written, you know, like this tricks where you can like pre-write something on there and you don't see it. And then the fog will bring that up. She's like, no, nah, my, my father didn't, he, he wouldn't do that. So apparently this stuff kept going on. And then I found out later she got admitted to a psycho ward. But I don't know if it's because she got on drugs. Because I heard she followed down the same path as her mother. Now we're moving on to the years that Chris spent in the military. The Air Force, to be exact. And this is like an introduction to his military service. He talks about where he was stationed. And he gets into explaining the differences between Area 2 and Area 51. Really fascinating stuff. All right, so let's get into Chris's uh, introduction and explanation of him getting into the Air Force. When I joined the military, I went through, you know, your basic training and what they call tech school. You know, and I did this in Texas, in Lackland. I was security forces, but it would be similar to being a grunt. I trained in tech school, and because of what was going on, they didn't want to send people that already had families to these hot zones because the morale was going down, and they found out that a lot of those people weren't re-upping. So for them, it was more like a planning thing, like for the future. Okay, so what are we going to do? Because we're losing troops and we need troops. Well, let's not send troops to have families to these hot zones. So it took them like almost a month to find me a duty station. So I got stuck at Lackland doing like shit work, you know, cleaning up garbage and stuff like that. And then they assigned me, eventually they assigned me Nellis. Now I found out Nellis is in Las Vegas, but I never put two and two together at the time. Being that I was already a fan of UFOs and all this other stuff, I didn't realize that's where Area 51 is. And not too far away is Roswell, New Mexico. You know, I'm, I'm like right in the middle of all that, but it, it didn't never occur to me. In my mind, I'm thinking I'm just going to do my four. If I can do more doing something like another job, because, you know, there's this thing called cross training where like cross train into a different field. That way you stay in. And that way, if you do extra years and you want to get out, you can get a job doing that that whatever it is that you learn i get to the base it's a very beautiful looking base but on the inside there's a lot of shit that goes on a lot of corruption just like any other job or 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 place that you work for institution there's corruption that goes on and you know i started to notice things and some of the things that i noticed were there was these areas that were off limits so we had a flight line 
that was connected to the main base. And then that flight line, there was a road that connected to this uh, spot called Area 2, okay? Now, people would say, oh, Area 2, Area 51, how, is that, how does that correlate? Well, when the military got into Vegas, they broke Vegas down into these quadrants, and they called them areas. And then they send this pilot out to fly over into the desert to find a place where they can build this, this installation, which would be called Area 51. And it's because it's on the 51st place on the map. The quadrant is called Area 51. It's not really the base itself. The base is called Groom Lake, essentially. Anyway, so that's where Area 2 comes in. And Area 2 is what they call a WSA, Weapon Storage Area. The Weapon Storage Area is where they house weapons. Now, what kind of weapons? It depends. I know that when I was there, it had nuclear weapons. It also had missiles for whatever, you know, missiles for combat, it had, you know, all types of things. There was also like this little section off area where we were told, if you see people coming in and out of that building, don't even approach them. Don't go into that building. Don't approach that building. Don't ask any of those people questions because you will get in trouble. And you couldn't ask why. You just did what you were told. So you would see these people coming in and out of this building. There was like this, uh, almost like the, the side of the building was almost like a cutout, like a garage. And it had this black tarp. And you couldn't really see inside of it, but people were constantly coming in and out of it. Also on the flight line, behind the flight line, were these buildings, all glass. I was told not even the base commander wasn't even allowed in that building. But if you took binoculars from the flight line and you looked through binoculars, you saw black cars with black tinted windows, dudes in black suits and ties and, and glasses. You couldn't talk about it. You, you couldn't ask questions about it. We weren't allowed anywhere in that direction. And then there's another base, which a lot of people don't talk about. When I was going, when I was at Nellis, it was called uh, Indian Springs. They changed it to Creech Air Force Base. Now, you were assigned there, or if they needed help in some sort of way, they could pull personnel from Nellis over there to help out. And at times I would go over there to help out a couple of times and I've had, I had incidents there as well. Now that base, if you do research on it, you'll find that there's an individual named Charles Hall. Charles Hall worked out there as, as a meteorologist for the Air Force. And he's the one that brought that, I guess, coined the term Nordic aliens, the tall whites. He had a relationship with them. That connects to this individual, Steve Barone, he lives outside of Vegas, and this guy is not, initially was not a UFO guy. He didn't have his first sighting until he was 40. He really wasn't a UFO guy until he started filming UFOs literally outside of his backyard. And he, he, has a, he has a page called UFOs Over Vegas. You should check that out. And I got in contact with him because he has a video of a UFO that's very similar to something I saw when I was stationed out in Vegas. Almost exactly. In this next portion, Chris begins to explain his actual flight crew and some of the procedures that they had to follow while on base. And this is all background so you can understand the context of the story that he's going to get into. He and three other Air Force security officers 
see something unexpected in the sky. The story then ends in the all-too-familiar way that we hear these major UFO events happening on military bases. It brings to mind Rendlesham, it brings to mind Roswell, and countless others. Let's hear Chris's story about a UFO he saw on a military base. I get to Vegas late September, October-ish, before Thanksgiving and before Christmas. And at the time that I get there, I'm what they call a sentry. So I'm working security. At Nellis, there's two different security forces members. You had security and then you had law enforcement. Law enforcement worked main base and then security worked area two. That's where the nukes were. You know, we had above ground, I guess you call them silos or whatever. So when I get there, that's what I'm assigned to. I'm assigned to area two working at Nellis. Now, when you enter area two, there's a spot called an ECP, entry control point. You can't go into area two without passing through this entry control point. That's where they check to make sure you don't have bombs on you. You don't have any extra weapons on you because you, you're going to get armed there. If, if you work there, you're going to get armed there. If you're on shift, that's where you're going to get armed. You're not coming in with weapons unless you're coming from main base and then you're already announced that you're going to come to the area for whatever reason, like to drop something off. But you have to be obviously in uniform. You can't just be a civilian. So it was very like high security. So you enter the entry control point and on your right hand side, you have what they call control. Control is where you have the flight chief. And I always, t- always say this, the flight chief is very similar to like the head coach. And he is in charge of a flight of individuals that have to do security at a specific time. So he's the head coach. We're all the players. And we are assigned different duties around Area 2 to protect. We're, we're surrounded by fence line, but not one, but three fences. So the inner fence is all wired up with cameras and all these different types of detections. The middle fence is an electric fence, and then the outer fence is the same as the inner fence, all these different alarms and everything. And so we all have our duties. So you have your perimeter patrols, the inside perimeter patrols. There's about like maybe 10, 15 of them. And all they do is they patrol a certain amount, a certain like yardage amount of area. And then they overlap with the other patrol. So that way there's no gaps. And then you have what they call these fire teams. There's two Humvees. And inside the Humvees, you have an individual with an M60, you know, again, late 90s, early 2000s. I don't know what they do now, but an individual with an M240 saw gun. You had two individuals that had M4 carbines, but one of the M4 carbines had a grenade launcher on it. And everybody was equipped with night vision goggles. And those fire teams can go anywhere. The perimeter patrols, they can go anywhere only if the flight chief said they can go somewhere. But other than that, they had to stay in the area. That was it. And then you had the flight chief and then his assistant. And then you had like an officer. They were allowed to go anywhere that they wanted to go. So every day they would do um, these exercises to get us ready in case like something real happened. That was a mandatory. The flight in the daytime and the flight in the nighttime always had to do an exercise. Every once in a while, the flight chief would like be like, no, nah, we don't have to do one today. But really, I'm supposed to do one every day. So anyway, so I'm there. I'm learning the ropes, whatever. I'm new. I'm what they call a slick sleeve. And what that means is I don't have a rank on my on my shoulder. Now, I don't know if they do that now. I think they're not allowed to anymore because a lot of people didn't want to join the military without having a rank. 
But back then, you had to earn your way up. So when I got in, I had no rank, essentially. So I was just like a basic airman. Normally, when they put you on a patrol, you have to be with someone that outranks you because they have to teach you the ropes. They don't want you to be with someone you're equal because then you're not really going to learn anything. So one night, this is like between Thanksgiving and Christmas of uh, 98. So we worked 12-hour shifts. My shift was like, I think, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. at that time. I'm there on one of the whiskey patrols, and I'm facing the backside of Area 2, which is faces out the, into the desert. There's nothing but desert, and off in the distance, you could see mountains. Also, there was what they call a gypsum plant. It's this element that they use in all types of products. But there was a plant out there where they mined for the gypsum, and you can see the smoke in the daytime. So essentially what I'm saying is there wasn't a lot of activity out in that desert. It was nothing but vast fucking desert. But at nighttime, bro, you can see every single fucking star out there, like thousands and thousands of stars. They would blanket the sky to the point where you can see them disappear behind the mountain and you can see the actual outline of the mountains. That's how many stars it was. You know, that's how, that's how clear it was out there. It was beautiful. We're out there doing our patrols and we would, you know, patrols would meet up. We weren't really supposed to meet up in certain spots and hang out per se, but you know, you get bored. You may not like your partner that you're with. So you meet up with another patrol at, at a specific spot and you just kind of shoot the shit. So this is like probably 20, 30 minutes, right? Before we're, we're going to like do the shift change with the other patrols that are coming in. And we're just talking, but we're facing outside of this desert. And next thing you know, we see a series of lights in a triangular pattern. And it starts out with the you know light on the top, light on the bottom left, and then light on the bottom right. And it does this like two or three times. And the last probably maybe, you know, 15, 20 seconds at the most. But there's not supposed to be anything out there, like nothing at all. So we're silent literally for like minutes. Standing, we're not even like, communicating with each other we're not looking at each other we're just silent and then one of the individuals like should we call it in so my partner who was a senior guy was like yeah we have to we have no choice so he wound up calling it in when you call it in the person on the other end is not understanding what you're saying so they're like what are you saying well we saw these lights out in the desert what type of lights we don't know they, they, they shine so bright you know it was almost like daytime that's how bright it was they were like, okay, hold off a second. Then the flight chief gets on. And he hardly ever gets on the radio unless he really needs to. He, said, he tells us, don't move. Stay there. I'm coming to you. So he comes, his assistant comes, and the officer who's, who has to be there is usually a lieutenant. They talk to us. What, what happened? We see the lights they're in that direction, blah, blah, blah. So he's like, all right. We were just about to do the shift change. That got taken out. So it, it got frozen. Everybody had to stay in their, in their, in their spots. The flight chief, the assistant, the lieutenant, and one of the fire teams went out there to do the investigation. So they come back, they reinstitute the shift chain, but they tell me, my partner, and the other guys, don't go anywhere, come see the flight chief in his office. So we go in there, they give us these papers, and we have to fill out the memo, each of us, of what happened. I don't know what they wrote, they don't know what I wrote, but we're filling this stuff out. So he calls us in there one by one, and he has us tell the story. So I go in there, I tell my story. And then right before I leave, he says, 
this never happened. He's like, you're a hard worker. I know you're a hard worker. I don't want your time here to be like bad. He's like, don't talk about it. You're going to face some stiff penalties if something else happens. Okay. Now, normally when something like that happens, they get OSI involved. OSI is Office of Special Investigation. And they're kind of like the, the CIA of the Air Force. So OSI normally gets involved, but for some reason they never got involved. But I heard through the grapevine that the flight chief was an ex-worker at Area 51, along with some other people that worked at Nellis. They also worked at Area 51 and they had connections. And essentially I heard that he told OSI, I got this. You know, just don't, don't worry about it. You know, we never heard anything after that. The memo, I don't know what happened to it. Again, nobody was allowed to talk about it because the next day when we had our, our meeting, you know, we, before we, we started our shift, he told the whole flight, look, whatever happened yesterday didn't happen. I don't want nobody talking about this. Okay. So we didn't. And nothing ever came of it after that. You know, I never talked about it with the other individuals. One I became friends with. And we had a friendship throughout my whole time that I was there at Nellis. And we never once talked about it. I lost contact with this guy. I mean, I probably can find him. I just don't know if he wants to talk. I never really went out and spoke about this out in the open until I met Robert Hastings. And he did an article on what I did. And then he asked me if I knew other people. I talked to this, like this other friend of mine. And at first he wanted to, but then he got scared for some reason. He decided not to. So I don't reach, I'm not trying to find this, this other individual because I, I just don't want, I don't want to fuck up their lives, man. I don't want like, if they're going to come out with it, they're going to do it on their own. Let them do it on their own. I'm not going to be the one to the catalyst, you know? It'd be different if it was just us four and we had that incident and that was it. But through Robert Hastings, like a couple of months later, he had told me that there was this other guy that as I was leaving the Air Force, he was coming in. I actually still have the, the Word document chronicling this guy's stories while he was at Nellis, and they match up exactly to the point where the same spot where I saw the lights, they had an incident. This is in 2000. I got out in 2002. This was like 2004. There was a light out there, but everybody that worked in the daytime, you couldn't see anything, but they knew something was there but it was invisible. They knew it. Like they, they, they would look in that area all the time and they were like, there's something there. They did something, just, they just knew that there was something there. It just wasn't revealing itself. What Chris described at the end of that story where they knew something was in the sky, but they just couldn't see it reminds me a lot of the movie Signs. But... This wasn't a movie. But moving on, this next story is actually something Chris and I talked about off air, but I found it so fascinating, I was hoping he would share it on air, and he agreed to. It's not his story, uh, it's a story that he heard while on base. And it's about a lesser known cryptid called Catman. Not Batman, Catman. And maybe Batman is top of mind right now because I just saw The Batman, uh, which was amazing, by the way. Um, 
Some people are calling Pattinson kind of like a goth Batman. The whole vibe of that movie is definitely dark and does have goth-like aesthetics. It's really cool, not to mention they play Nirvana <laughs> during uh, a few different key scenes and uh, it just works so well. Wow, tangent, I'm so sorry. Let's get into Chris's story about Catman. At first, when I first heard the story, I felt it was a lore sort of thing, like, you know, a wives' tale. I just found out somebody else talked about it, and I don't even know who this person is. So there's, like, there's no connection between me and this person other than they worked in the military in Vegas. They didn't say Nellis. They said in Vegas. So I'm thinking they worked at Creech Air Force Base, unless they were um, reserve. And I'll get into the reserve part because it links to this guy like that, I, that I was just telling you that I wanted to hook up with Robert Hastings and he didn't want to talk. His name is He initially worked at main base when I first got there. He already had been there probably about a year. He's very gun-ho guy, nice guy, great guy. And he would be the type of individual that would be a cop. People that work law enforcement don't want to work security. To them, that's a step down. So he got transferred into security because we were low you know, manpower, and he got transferred. He hated it. And you could tell, I mean, he did a you know, good job, but he hated it. But him and I wound up becoming friends. And then we had these things called red flag, red flag exercises. That was, that's what they were called. It would happen like once a year. And when that would happen, they would need more people on the flight line. They asked for volunteers, but in reality, you would get volunteers. You, you know, they would say, do you, you want to do it? And you kind of almost had to say yes. So him and I volunteered, and luckily him and I became partners. And so him and I would, would just sit there and we'd talk and we'd just like go off on deep tangents and, and, and conversations and we would talk about UFOs. And I was working in the armory because when I started out as a sentry, I busted my ass so hard, an opportunity came up and... The, the person who ran the armory, he really liked how it worked. So he kind of like talked to the flight chief and was like, look, I know he's not supposed to like get this job yet, but I really need somebody. And I think he would be great. Like, and the flight chief was kind of reluctant because the flight chief liked me and liked my, the work that I did. But he was like, I don't want to hold you back. But he looked out for me and he was like, fine, take him. So I wound up working in the armory. And so from there, I got volunteered to work in the flight line. So I'm having a conversation with this guy. And he told me that the guy that's running the armory, who I can give his name because he's, he's passed. And he, I consider him a mentor. I mean, his name was Larry Angel, Sergeant Larry Angel. Him and Larry Angel worked at Area 2 before I got there. And they had an incident one night where they're sitting in the truck. They see this dot in the sky. And the dot starts to move. But it doesn't just move. It starts to do the zigzag pattern. And then it winds up right over their truck. So tells Larry, like, I know we're not going to say anything. And Larry's like, yeah, because we, we, we're just not going to do it. That's just how we are. But what we, what we are going to do is we're going to move. <laughs> we're going to move the truck. So they, they got weirded out by that. So he was telling me that story. And then I told him what happened between me and these other guys. And he's like, yeah, I've heard that before. And we talked about shadow people. And then he asked me if I heard about Catman. And I was like, what the fuck is a Catman? You know? 
there's all these different cryptids, you know. I think at the time, late 90s, was the Chupacabra craze. So he's telling me, yeah, there's this thing called Catman, you know. And he started to break it down. Like, he started to tell me what he was told. What he was told was it was like some sort of genetic experiment. That it was the military splicing the DNA of two animals to create this weapon. They were going to train this thing to be some sort of killing machine, replicate it, make more of them. And then whenever they go to war, they at least do the bidding. So he was telling me that. And then, I, you know, so I wanted him to go into it further. Like, how do you know all this stuff? Okay. So this is where the reserves come in. His wife was also a cop in the military, but she was for the reserves. Now, I don't know where the reserve base was, but I think it was between Nellis Air Force Base and Pahrumpf, Las Vegas. She had this partner she was always with. I think his name was and had an uncle who was a contractor out in Vegas. Some of his contracts were for Area 51. One of his jobs supposedly was to build this encasement, this fenced encasement out near Area 51, somewhere near Area 51, that was like miles wide. Took him, you know, about a year or so to do it. Essentially like a cage, but not small though. But he built this in, this in, this encasement thing that's miles wide, set up very similar to like Nellis. It's three fences, but these fences are not like chain link fences. They're like heavy duty, thick fences, but they have the same stuff, the same alarms on it, the same sensors on it, all that. The middle fence, you know, electric, same thing. He didn't know what he was building this for. He didn't ask questions. They told him not to ask questions. And he, they paid well. So he, whatever they needed him to do, he would go, take care of it, blah, blah, blah. Now, he was allowed, actually, at times, to go into Area 51. They have, like, what they call a um, chow hall, right? Like, every base has a chow hall where people can go and eat, right? So if you work, if, you work, if you're in the military or you work for the military as a contractor, you're allowed to go and get food, you know? Supposedly, this, this uncle goes into the chow hall to eat. He describes the chow hall as having windows that are covered. They don't want you to look outside because they're running tests on things that they don't want people to see. He has specific instructions not to talk to anybody. When, so when he's in the line, all he can do is talk to the person that's going to serve him food to say what he wants or to pay for his food or whatever, but it, not to talk to anybody else that's in the line. So... He's in the line, there's somebody in front of him, and it turns out that it's some sort of scientist guy. Somehow he said the guy knew, the scientist knew that he built that structure and asked him, you know, are you the one that built the structure? He's like, yeah, I built the structure. And he's like nervous because he's wondering why this guy's talking to him. And he's looking around to make sure the guards aren't seeing him talking, you know, because he's in trouble and he doesn't want to lose, you know, work. So he's like whispering to this guy, like, yeah, you know, I am the guy. Like, why? He's like, you want to know why we built that? He's like, not really. But he's like, oh, okay. I thought you would not want to know about the experiment that we were doing. He's like, what experiment? He's like, we are creating this this sort of weapon. And he explained it to him. It was like the, the DNA splicing of two animals, and we we are using that encampment to track its hunting pattern. So we're throwing other animals in there to see how this thing would hunt those animals, and we're doing research on that. So. They had this conversation and he, he feels like he almost got caught talking. So he eats his food real quick and he leaves. So supposedly like 
months later, they call him back because something happened at this at this fence line that he that he built this, this area that he built. And when he gets there, it's like this huge hole in the fence through all three of them. And so he asks the guard because the, there has to be guards there watching him while he's trying to repair this stuff because he can't be there by himself. He asked the guard, "What the hell happened? Like, how did this happen?" And he said the guard was like stuttering, but told him that there was a vehicle that was parked there and apparently something happened with the engine and it exploded and it blew the fence open. But he knew it was bullshit. And this was like years before I got there. So, and this is what started supposedly the whole like, you know, Catman story because that's what this was. It was a creature that had like, like tiger DNA mixed with something else. Now, I thought it was bullshit, but it wasn't until like one day I was in the armory. It's nighttime and I hear commotion in, in one of the main rooms. And the main room is where the flight meets. So where the flight meets is where they also get their weapons. There's two like windows that have doors that open and that's inside of the armory. So when the flight comes to either turn in their weapon to me for the day or to arm up for the day, I have to open up that window and then there's bars, but it has enough space to fit weapons through it, right? That's for my protection, right? And for their protection so as well. And so I hear commotion and I open up and there's these two guys like literally like freaking out. And I'm like, what's going on? So one of them had been there for years. He was like the senior airman and the other one was a brand new troop. This dude was so fucking white. He sat down on one of the chairs. He had his hand like in his in his in his face. You know, he's bent over, and the, the senior guy's telling him, you know, did, did you hear that? The same thing that I heard. And he's like, yeah, I heard it, but I didn't think it was true. So apparently, they were they were an Oscar patrol now, and they patrol the outside. There's a little like, what would you call it? Like a little like path that leads up to this bluff that oversees inside of the weapon storage area and only military people are allowed there. The Oscar patrols, the flight chief, the base commander, that's it. Nobody else. Civilians are not allowed up there. You can get arrested, killed potentially, you know, but that bluff, there's a path that goes up there and it's very narrow, but to get there, you have to go through parts of the desert. That's very barren. There's nothing out there. There's no, Houses, nothing. Apparently, they were up on the bluff, looking down into the area, and their Humvee was broken, meaning the top where the M60 normally comes out of, there's supposed to be like a little piece that covers that hole where the M60 is supposed to stand. Like, if you're not using it, there's supposed to be a piece. Well, they, it was missing the piece. So it was wide open. But they said they heard something crashing up the pass and roar so loud that it rumbled and vibrated the car. And they tried to get out of there so fast that they almost went off the bluff. The person, guy put it in drive instead of reverse and almost drove off the bluff, which they would have been killed instantly. But he wound up turning around and as he's driving down, they're both looking left and right to see if they see anything and they didn't see anything, but something was out there. I get it. Uh, a lot of that is tough to take in spliced DNA, a massive 
cage essentially being built, you know, a scientist talking to this person and uh, it's a lot to take in and it's fascinating. And that's why I wanted him to share it. And it's these types of stories where we truly leave it up to you to decide what you want to believe. This next story, while brief, gets into a sinister sounding shadow person story that Chris experienced while on base. Here you go. Okay, so there was a few incidents with like shadow people, but also like disembodied voices. Like I was working the, the midnight shift in the armory, which means I was working probably six at night to like maybe six in the morning. There was this one time where I, this is when I was working on flight. This is before the armory. Where control is, is one building. And then outside of control, there's like this driveway up and this metal door, right? And I always wondered what that metal door was. I never asked what it was, but one day they were like, yeah, you need to go down to the storage closet and grab the, grab the dummy, right? What they would do is, they would do, like I told you, every day these exercises to get us prepared. And sometimes they would use this dummy, this mannequin, but they kept it in the storage area. One day they're like, and this is in the daytime, they're like, go down, go down there and grab that dummy because we're about to do an exercise. So as I'm going down there, one of the guys was like, yeah, hey, make sure the ghost doesn't get you. <laughs> I go down and it's this metal door and I'm like, oh, okay. So this metal door is a storage area. So the door is a heavy fucking door. So you got to pull it wide open. And as soon as you open it, the, the temperature in there is freezing. Now we're in the desert. This is the summertime. It gets 110. You know, I'm wearing all this gear because you have to wear all this gear, Kevlar vest, et cetera. And I'm sweating my balls up, but this shit hits you like a ton of brick. But not only does that temperature hit you, but the energy in there hits you. Really like heavy energy in there. So I walk in and it's pitch black. And they told me, yeah, there's a light there. You know, the, the typical light bulb with the little chain that you have to pull. But even when you turn the light on, dude, it's not fucking bright. It's, it's dim still. It's like almost dark. It's like a fucking dungeon in there, dude. So I enter this pitch black and I can't see shit. So I'm using my flashlight to find the dummy and to find that, that light bulb. And I scare the shit out of myself because I see feet. I'm like, oh shit, there's a fucking body in here, you know? <laughs> Get the shit out of myself. I'm like, who the fuck is that? But it's the dummy. So I find the dummy. And I don't need to turn the light on because I find the dummy and I pull it on like, you dumb motherfucker. And then I put it over my shoulder but as I'm walking out, I get this feeling that something's watching me. And when I turn around, dude, like it's dark in there, but these shadow creatures project themselves the darker than dark, dude. And this black mass that had like a shape of a head and shoulders and a torso was just standing there, just watching me. And I get the fuck up out of there and I turn around one, one last time to look and it's not there anymore. And I mentioned it to one of the guys and he's like, yeah, that, that thing has always been in there. And he told me that used to be an elevator down to a lab, like a laboratory, but something happened in the laboratory that they had to seal it up and they turned it into a storage room. That's what he told me. Okay, don't worry. Chris and I didn't capture an EVP during our recording session. <laughs> uh, that was actually Chris's phone going off uh, where you heard that little voice in the background there. So just an FYI on that. Now, 
Chris goes on to explain some more ghostly happenings on base. And it was actually his day off when this particular story occurred, but his buddies told him about it the next day. Check this out. Let's get into the ghost stuff, okay? So this is where the ghost stuff comes in. Not personally, this is stuff that, I, that I've heard, okay? Now, we have the, the, the fences at Area 2, and there's, there's three of them, like I said. And you have control, which is the main building, and in there they have CCTV, and they have people that monitor those, those cameras, okay? And if something goes off, they'll send the patrol that's in that area, hey, go check this out. Somebody has to go out, somebody has to get out of the vehicle, and they have to walk their, their section. So this one time, this guy working in the control area with watching the CCTVs, he told me that one day he's in control, he's watching the CC cameras, and he sees somebody inside the fence line. But it's a military guy inside the fence line holding a weapon, you know, because they have the, sh the shoulder guard, the shoulder um, strap, and you can see the, the, the butt of the weapon, and they're walking inside the fence line. So he calls that patrol that's there, and he's asking that person, are you walking inside the gate? How did you get in there? And the patrols, because it's, like I said, there's two people for patrol. They're like, what are you talking about? So right away, red flag. Shit hits the fan, because that means somebody's in there. With the weapon, no less. They send the patrol over there. The flight chief is headed over there at the time. So the patrol gets there first. And they're walking, and they're not seeing anything. But this guy's still on the camera seeing somebody walking in that fence line. The flight chief gets out there. He's walking it with the patrols. They don't see anything, and this guy's still seeing it. So he calls somebody else into the room with him, and there, there's like four people watching the camera seeing someone walking back and forth like they're on patrol they thought it was a camera default like like something the camera but he's like no man he's like that was that was a ghost and then here's another one i'll tell you this one i was working in the armory this one night dude i'm working the midnight shift okay so i come and i relieve the armor that was there before me that's how it works you know and I relieve this guy, get the keys, everything. He tells me everything's good. All the weapons are there, blah, blah, blah. They're clean. Blah. So he's supposed to have his radio on just in case there's an emergency. And then also we get calls sometimes from the flight chief. If somebody comes in late, like a troop, let's say had a doctor's appointment, it comes in late, the flight chief will call and say, hey, you got somebody coming in right now. We, you know, he's, he's allowed to get armed because we can't just arbitrarily arm people. Anyway, he didn't have his radio on. I thought he had it on. So I'm doing my job as normal. And about two, three hours into the shift, I want to say it's like nine, ten o'clock at night. I get a bang on the armored door and I open it up and this guy, he's like, and I know who he is. He's like, I need to get armed. There's some shit going down, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what's going down? He's like, you don't have your radio on? And I'm like, oh man, I haven't even heard the radio since I've been here. I said, let me, I said, let me go check it. As soon as I turn that radio on, there's chatter back and forth. Boom, 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 boom. Apparently somebody or some people were in the area running around, but they couldn't, nobody could catch them. They were disappearing. That's what I was hearing. Oh, this person ran behind this car. We just went there and they're not there. We don't know what's going on. So what wound up happening, this patrol is, uh, stops at this area, like one of the markers. They stop at the marker just to kind of hang out. 
something jumped in the back of their flatbed enough to push the back down. And when they looked through the rear mirror, all they saw was a shadow of a person. This thing jumps out. So the car comes back up to normal and takes off in the desert. They call on the radio. There's somebody here. They thought it was an exercise. They asked the control, is this exercise or real world? So control's like, we, we're not doing an exercise. This is real world. So they go and they chase after this thing. Now they're driving 80, 90 miles an hour trying to chase after this thing. And this thing is ahead of them. While they're chasing this, another call comes in from the other side of area two that there's somebody running in the desert on the other side. So next thing you know, you have like seven, eight, like shadow people running around the area and being chased by all these different patrols. And they couldn't catch them. They were running behind poles or, or jumping, you know, under parked cars. And when you would shine the light, there was nothing there. No footprints, nothing. It looked humanoid, but with no features. The way that they said that these things moved were very weird. Wasn't running like a human, so to speak. It was almost like they were gliding. I think the most compelling part of that last story was when Chris was explaining when he was in the armory and his radio was turned off and other officers on the military base were having to deal with some sort of unknown creatures or shadow creatures, ghosts of some sort, maybe a form of Catman. I don't know. All right. Chris has one last story to share with us. This particular story places Chris over at Creech AFB, and he sees something happen in the sky that is truly otherworldly. One last one. This is when I was uh, working for at Creech Air Force Base. I got sent to main base. They needed somebody to work the gate the first time I went, it was with a partner and we wound up working out there and it's a really weird place, bro. It, it's not as active as Nellis is. And I think mainly because Nellis is really in by the strip. So there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of, and it's, it's like I said, it's a very beautiful base. It's got like, I think a museum in it. And so you got people coming in and out all the time, but Creech is very creepy. To the point where I'm at the gate and maybe two people come in from the gate, like drive in, but nobody leaves the whole shift that I'm there. And I'm there for at least eight hours, sometimes 12. And then there's nobody walking on the base. You don't see people walking from one building to the next. So I went, I went there that one time and then they asked me to go there again. But the second time I was supposed to be with a partner, but that partner called in. And so they told me, look, dude, we need somebody out there. You're going to be by yourself, but we're going to get you. They're like, bring a lunch, but we're going to get you when it's time for you to get out. So don't worry about that. So I'm like, all right, cool. So again, same thing. Hardly anybody comes in or anybody leaves. I'm there the whole ship. And it's not until like 545 where it starts to get dark and I'm bored. I'm in what they call the entry control point of, of that place. And I lead the entry control point and they maybe like, I don't know, like 10, 15 feet is the main road. So I start to walk towards the main road just to get air. And I turn around and behind 
Creek Air Force Base is a mount is mountains. And I see this amber orb just floating by this mountain. So I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, oh, they're probably, you know, flying a helicopter or they're probably doing like an exercise or something. But then this orb shoots a laser onto the side of the mountain to the point where this side of the mountain starts to melt and starts dripping down. Then the laser stops and then the orb just disappears. And then I'm looking at the side of the mountain for at least 10 minutes and I'm still seeing the, the, the heat emanating from the side of the mountain. So then I go back into the entry control point and dude, I didn't freak out. I would have before, but it's like, this is what, this is my life. This is what it's about. You know, I'm not going to freak out over this. So I go and I call and I'm like, Hey, I'm supposed to get picked up in 15 minutes. Like, how's that going? Oh, we're, we're going to be there probably half hour late. We apologize. We'll be there. All right. So I go, I go about doing my job. They pick me up and the ride is about 45 minutes to an hour. Do I say anything to those guys? No. <laughs> what is, for what? What are they going to do? You know, so I don't say shit. Just drive home, go home. It's another day. You know, I saw another, something else weird. Whoo, that was a whole lot of stuff. And I thank you so much for listening to all of Chris's stories. He's got even more experiences to share, and we might have him back for a part two. You can find Chris and his Universal Dialect show on YouTube. Just search for Arise Creations, A-R-I-S-E, Arise Creations, and I'll also link it in the show notes. Once again, thank you for joining me on this large-sized bonus episode of the I Want to Believe podcast. We kind of ran the gamut on this from UFOs to shadow people and ghosts and uh, a cat man. Thank you all for coming along for the ride. Now, season five is out and streaming. We've got 10 all new episodes covering everything from UFO landings to black eyed kids, cults, and more. If you can, check out my books and other projects at slavicstore.company.site. And if you want, give us a follow on Instagram at 207believe. There's more bonus episodes on the way. Thanks for your support. And thanks so much for listening. I'm no more Slavic. Underneath the bridge, top is sprung a leak, and the animals are trapped. All become my pets, and I'm living off the grass, and the drippings from the